Hey everybody, Luke Thomas here. Hope you're doing okay. Well, as you guys know, I don't tend to do a ton of interviews, but I do them on occasion. And I felt like doing one for this channel with uh, our next guest, which will be Nate Quarry. You might know Nate, of course, season one of The Ultimate Fighter and, and a lot of other places as well. But uh, I want to have him on for two reasons. One, he's got a Kickstarter going for his comic book series. There'll be information in the description box, which you'll hear me in this interview describe a number of times. It's for Zombie Cage Fighter. As you can see right there, Zombie Cage Fighter. So we'll talk all about the genesis of this, how you can contribute if you're interested. But also this week, there was a major ruling in the class action lawsuit, that's officially now a class action lawsuit, against the UFC, which Nate has been a very vocal proponent and participant in for all of this time. Plus, he has been in Washington, Washington D.C. any number of times to lobby Congress on behalf of expanding the Ali Act to MMA. So we get into what that is, why he is advocating on behalf of it, why it's different from unionization, his thoughts on what it means to get class certification, which the plaintiffs did in their suit against the UFC. And then, of course, we spend a ton of time on his passion project uh, as well. Nate's a very interesting guy, an opinionated guy, a guy who stands on his principles, um, for better or for worse. I, you know, Not every time it works out well for you, but um, there's a reason why you do it just the same. And it's always good to see fighters after their career is over um, involved, not really in just passion projects, but projects that are, you know, that speak to the diversity of uh, interests in the fighting community um, beyond just fisticuffs themselves, yeah? All right, so give the video a thumbs up, hit that subscribe button. Without further ado, here's Nate Quarry. All right, joining me now is a man who you might know from many places, season one of The Ultimate Fighter. He was my co-worker for a time. He was a contender in the UFC's middleweight division. And now he is many things, including but not limited to comic book proprietor. Zombie Cage Fighter is the one that we are talking about here. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But it is the uh, inimitable and my friend, Nate Quarry. Hi, Nate Quarry. How are you? I'm doing awesome, man. It's so good to see you. I miss back in 2012 flying out to Manhattan once a week and sitting down with you, Craig Carton, and just talking MMA. That was good times it was a different world back then wasn't it i mean craig has been through quite a journey as we all know and so have you so have i in my own way it's been that was a you're right it was a fun time but such a different time than it is today what a blast that was where we just got to go out there and hang out talk about mma and and have the guests i, I remember sending a huge email to everyone associated with the show from the grip to the the president of the network saying Hey, we've got this guest coming on who's kind of an unknown, <clears throat> Ronda Rousey. We only have her on for a few minutes. Why not focus the entire episode on her, the state of women's MMA, how things are exploding? And I was told, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. Let's just keep going. <laughs> what we tell you. <laughs> that was actually the one episode that I missed because I got married. I was actually ah. out that week. Ah, no priorities, man. Yeah, I know. What was I thinking? Uh, okay. What, three, three times? I'm, yeah, three times <laughs> exactly. Have Ronda guest. Come on. Exactly. Uh, well, listen, there's a lot to get to. Uh, there will be a link in the description box below. If you are listening to this in audio form, I will make sure that there's a link in the audio description, whatever platform you're listening to this on. I want to get to it first. I'm going to introduce it, but I will, we'll circle back to it because... There's, there was, I won't say breaking news, but really important news that I want to get to. Of course, we're going to talk about Nate's zombie cage fighter 
comic book. There's a Kickstarter out for it. We'll, we'll circle back to it, but I want to make sure that folks who you know start the conversation and I get to the end understand that we're going to be plugging this and talking about it. First things first, though, yesterday, big news, Nate, and actually affects you in a lot of different ways. So for folks who did not hear, there was a judge in Nevada, Judge Bulware, who decided that the fighters who were uh, suing the UFC and trying to make it a class, <clears throat> excuse me, a class action lawsuit, they won in the in, in the sense that their case is now going to be certified as a class action lawsuit. Before they were various parties, now they are one. Now he did throw out one part of it, but he kept the bigger part. There was bout, uh, I, uh, there was the 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 bout uh, certification, and then identity certification. The bout being, if you competed in the UFC for a certain time frame, you would be eligible to be a part of this unless you wanted to opt out. And the identity was one about um, related to uh, likeness rights. In advertising. Now, as I understand it, uh, you are part of the identity suit. Does that mean you're not part of the bout certification? Like, how does that work for you? Uh, because of the timeline, as you just mentioned, starting in December 2010, uh, that's correct. I'm no longer a plaintiff in the suit. And because the identity suit has been thrown out, now I'm, I'm just a supporter. Uh, but this is something, uh, as unfortunate as it may be, I knew from day one that it may come down like this just because of the timeline of when the suit was going to take place because of my fights, all those types of things. So from day one, and I know this is a hard concept for a lot of people to understand. I've been doing this because I believe it's the right thing to do, not just for personal benefit. I, I may end up getting something down the road. Who knows how that may play out? But I'm going to continue to support the plaintiffs, support the fighters, and do everything that I can to change the sport of MMA for past fighters, for present fighters, and for future fighters. Because this is just too big of a fight. You see so many, so many men and women that want to make it their dream career to be an MMA fighter and just can't make it. They're, they're basically subsidizing the UFC, working two to three jobs so they can fight on a main card in Las Vegas. It's ridiculous that the things need to change. How did you get involved with the lawsuit? I put out the word. Well, I, uh, as you may know, I have opinions. I'm not. Nah, -uh. you. <laughs> I'm not the best at keeping my mouth shut. I've been told that throughout my entire life that I, things would go a lot easier for me if I just kept my opinions to myself. But I'm just not that guy. And it started way back when I was still fighting for the UFC. They would make changes that I didn't care for. And I would do an interview saying, hey, we can no longer thank our sponsors after fights. I just lost money. Money came out of my pocket. I had sponsors call me and tell me, if you can't thank us after a fight, we're not going to sponsor you. So I did interviews saying things like that. When the UFC decided that every sponsor had to pay $50,000 directly to the UFC, I made statements about that. Then it was 100000 I made statements about that. At one point, I got a call from Mr. Dana White saying, look, man, nobody wants to hear your opinion on the business side of things. They just want to hear who you want to fight next. Shut up. Do your job. But I'm just not that guy. So even as my career ended and I, I saw these predatory practices continuing on and on, again, doing interviews, getting the word out there. And so the lawyers that were starting up this case contacted me, said, we've, we've heard you. Uh, you've made it known. Let's have a conversation. And, and I met them. I, I was more than happy to do so and, and share my side and, and join on so we could hopefully change this. Help fans understand. I mean, I sort of laid out the very basic 
and I'm not, I'm certainly no lawyer, but the very basic legal explanation, and also it deserves to be noted that the bout certification in terms of the damages, if they are awarded, they are significantly greater than the damages that would have been awarded through the identity certification. So that second part is thrown out, but the big damages could come from the way in which the judge um, certified the class. Now, that being said, uh, how did it come to be that, well, why couldn't you be on both of them? I guess is sort of what I'm trying to figure out here. Uh, really comes down to the timeline. Uh, because okay. my last fight was in the spring of 2010 and the statute of limitations started our suit in December of 2010. I just missed it by a few months. Doesn't awesome. mean that I wasn't damaged before that or any of the fighters before that. Just that's the way the laws work around here. Okay. Now, uh, the legal jargon notwithstanding, as I introduced, is there a way to help folks understand the significance of the ruling in maybe layman's terms? Yeah, so basically what we said was that the UFC had been suppressing our wages across the board to everyone for many, many years, and we all generally have the same story. The UFC even has tiers of wages that they would pay to people. So there was really no free market, no bargaining power once you signed with the UFC. And because as we say in our lawsuit, the UFC monopolized the, the sport at times uh, in their worst year during times of our our lawsuit they were making 94 cents out of every dollar worldwide spent on mma on the good years 97 percent of every dollar made it, it's it became such a controlling aspect and what a lot of people don't understand is well there's other organizations blah 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 it's very similar to what's happening right now with facebook where 46 states of the federal government are saying facebook has uh, an illegal monopoly over social media and such. Well, you can start a website. You can invite your friends onto it. How well is that going to compete with somebody that has billions of subscribers? The UFC has such a strong grasp, grip on the marketplace that it made competition next to impossible. So through our lawsuit, we're showing this, we're showing how they've suppressed wages uh, we were looking to compare to other sports, and it was very interesting sitting in the court having our economist, Hal Singer, get up and compare UFC, MMA to boxing and, and very clearly state and show the boxers will get somewhere around 85% of the gross income, whereas the UFC fighters will get closer to 15 17% of the gross income. And that's all because, of, first off, boxers have the Ali Act protecting them, but they have to, they, they get to test the free market. If they have earned a title shot, they get their title shot. Whereas in the UFC, we've seen over and over again, someone like John Fitch, who gets one title shot, although he was the, the number one contender for years and years, but because they didn't like him, they didn't like his attitude, they didn't like his style, they just denied that. In other cases, the UFC would offer a title shot to someone, but you would have to sign away all your likeness rights. You would have to sign a, a never-ending contract. And the UFC, if you win the title, you automatically have another fight on your contract. So you're never at a spot in your career as a champion where you can really test the free market. So we're alleging all of these things that essentially every fighter has been treated the same from the bottom to the top. The wages have been suppressed. And Judge Boulware agreed with us and said, yeah, you can go ahead and sue as one entity. And that, that's huge. It gives us so much teeth moving forward in our lawsuit.
What kind of response within the industry have you received from your, um, we'll talk about the Ali Act in just a second, but let's say from your advocacy efforts in particular related to this lawsuit. Uh, just we've seen so many just great congratulations going around because this this was just a huge victory for us. Uh, if we had not won class certification, that would mean that we would have had to go and go ahead and sue as an individual over and over and over again, over a thousand times to get what we're trying to get to. But with one one class action lawsuit, that means that we have 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 of these stories all compressed into one so we can go out there and, and, and speak the truth. And it's unfortunately, a lot of it's the same as it ever was that the fighters under contract are congratulating us behind the scenes saying thank you, but they know if they were to speak up and show support that uh, things wouldn't go very well for them in their career. Hmm, interesting. Now, the the part about it, there's a lot of ways this could go with class certification. You're now a class, or I should say they are, since you're no longer part of it in an official capacity. Uh, but there could be a settlement, they could go to trial, there could be damages awarded. There's a lot of, I mean, the, 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 the UFC could challenge it to the Ninth Circuit. There's a lot of different ways it could go. But that is a separate kind of uh, consideration than the Ali Act. Now, uh, I have talked to Representative Mark Wayne Mullen I mean, half a dozen times about this and his advocacy efforts. This is the gentleman, former UFC, or I should not say UFC, former MMA fighter, congressman out of uh, Oklahoma. He was the one who was really pushing these kind of advocacy efforts, uh, GOP member of Congress. Um, and they kind of made progress until they didn't. So what is the update on the Ali Act as it relates to MMA in, uh, in my hometown here? Boy, so... So this is where things get interesting and where I'm always a little shocked and disappointed when I see current MMA fighters standing arm in arm with Dana White and Donald Trump, because about four years ago, we had 58 signers to our Ali Expansion Act. And to explain to people who may not understand what, what that means, the Ali Act was passed a few years ago that supports boxers. It says that uh, promoters cannot uh, engage in predatory practices against boxers. They can't control the rankings. They can't require long-term contracts for title shots. They can't uh, have a controlling managing interest in a boxer and be a promoter. All those shady things had to go away, and there's teeth behind it because it's against the law. So boxers can then sue the promoter and, and make things right. MMA fighters don't have any of that. So you'll see the UFC in particular saying, ooh, I like this guy. I want to see him be successful. Let's pay him more than somebody else who may be a better fighter, may have a better record, but we don't like his look. We don't like the way that he carries himself. We don't like the way he does interviews. He causes some trouble. It, it's, it gets really deep into really it's just protecting the fighters and giving them a say. You earned your title shot. You get it. You have an outside board ranking the fighters. So it's no longer the UFC saying, well, we're cutting this guy and he's no longer in the top five. He's not even in the top 20. He doesn't exist. So when the Ali Act was passed, uh, I believe it was 16 signers on the bill. Uh, more Democrats than Republicans. It went to the floor. It passed, passed the Senate, got written into law. We had 58 signers on our bill, more Republicans than Democrats, because this really is a, a free agency thing. It's testing out the free market, let capitalism reign. And then Donald Trump came into office, who 
is good friends with Dana White. So the Ali Expansion Act would dramatically change the way that the UFC does business. It wouldn't run the UFC out of business. It would just mean all of a sudden, if Bellator says, well, hey, we want to put on the next Conor McGregor fight and we'll pay him $12 million, then the UFC has to pay 13 Or maybe Mark Cuban jumps in and says, I'm sick of this nonsense. I'm going to throw a promotion. I'm going to throw a fight. I'm going to put on a promotion like he attempted to do with Couture and Fedor. So he's going to start bidding in there. It puts all the power into the fighters' hands. And it, it for the fans, it makes those fights happen that you want to see. So Dana White, the UFC, knowing how much this would affect their business, that for the first time they'd actually be in competition with other people, had a, a, a meeting, we're assuming, with uh, Mr. President Trump and our Bill Dieting Committee. Uh, the head of the committee was a Republican out of Oregon uh, who has not returned to any of my calls, any of my messages, any of my emails, so I could discuss why he would kill this, this bill that was so popular. So uh, when President Biden takes office, we're planning on going right ahead and, and doing our thing and, and making it happen. You still plan on making it bipartisan, though, right? I mean, at this point, uh, relying on one party seems insufficient. Uh, of course, and we're so polarized throughout it. It's, it's just very unfortunate to see. So we're hoping that some of these things that are just clear, you know, we had 58 before. How many do we need? And we're going to hit up all those same people again, get their support again. It's, there was really only one or two roadblocks stopping it from being a law already, and that was Mr. White and Mr. Trump. Yeah, I only have one question about the Ali Act, and I want to get to um, some of the other things here we're talking about. But my one concern with it is, you know, I cover a lot more boxing now by virtue of my newer job with CBS and Showtime, and it's a phenomenal sport. If there's one thing I love about it, it is how much more fighters have control, how much more they have pay. And I don't know exactly what to say the problem with it is, but everything else about boxing relative to MMA as a consumer experience is kind of awful. I don't know when we're going to get uh, Crawford versus Spence. I don't know when we're going to get Fury versus Joshua. One th reason why uh, MMA works for the consumer is that the UFC's interest and the consumer's interest are highly aligned. And so you're able to get that alignment to work for both parties. Here here's what I mean to say. Why wouldn't it be better... Give me the case for why it wouldn't be better to just say, all right, if we had a union, yes, that would solidify the UFC as a monopoly in the way that, let's say, the NFL is a monopoly, but it would provide a series of guarantees and protections through a collective bargaining agreement, which would include but not be limited to higher wages. Well, the big difference between the NFL, baseball, NBA, and, and their mono monopolistic practices is they have teams bidding against each other, and that is what lets the free market reign there. In the UFC, it would still be one entity saying, this is what we're going to pay you, and we are the monopoly, we are the sport of MMA, there's no one else you can go to. So you may try to get some some collective bargaining to get some prices to, to go up, some values to go up, but in the long term, it really wouldn't because the UFC would have a chokehold on on the entire sport. They would be cemented at the top. Whereas free agency, the Ali Act, again, I, I don't personally have anything against UFC, any of the owners. They're doing what they think is right for themselves, how they want to perceive things. I want to do what's best for myself and other fighters, and that's through the free market, letting these fighters go through. And it, you mentioned uh, the UFC, their product is aligned with what the fans want. Is that really the case, or is that just what the UFC is giving the fans, what they're telling the fans? And we've seen this over and over again with 
new stars, up and coming stars that the UFC has decided this is the next guy. This is where we're going to put all of our backing behind. Come to find out he can't even fight. Much better would it be for these to be kind of a grassroots thing. A promoter is always going to want to put on the best show. Their whole goal is to get as much money as possible. Fans just want to see the best fights. The way for that to happen is for the fighters to grow organically, get to those title shots, and then be the best fighter they can <clears throat> across, <clears throat> excuse me, across an, an even playing field. Not one where Dana White is saying, well, we're going to send over this conditioning coach to make sure that you're in the best shape for this fight. <clears throat> and we've seen him do things like that in the past. That would be like the NFL saying, well, you know, we want uh, New York and L.A., to be in the Super Bowl together, so we're going to increase their salary cap a few million dollars. But you understand, this is what's best for the sport. No, it's what's best for you and your bottom line. What's best for the fans, what's best for any sport, is to just let it happen organically and let the cream rise to the top. Last question on this, I promise, which is, how, how uh, have you viewed the media coverage on this? When the initial lawsuit was announced, I think 2014, there was a swarm of coverage, kind of died off, uh, not died off, but it certainly dried up pretty significant degree from my view for the, the, the few years afterwards. But then it picked back up a lot more recently. And then with the announcement yesterday, New York Times was talking about it. Um, the former Deadspin site, uh, or at least the, the, the new version of it, Defector was talking about it. Uh, there's economists all over Twitter talking about it. It's a big deal. So in the totality of the experience, how have you viewed how the media has covered the story? Uh, the relationship with the media has always been kind of an interesting one when it comes to MMA. Um, you've been around long enough. I'm sure you recall, uh, when was it that the media was actually telling the story as it was. This fight wasn't that great. This card was kind of lackluster. And there was one show where Dana pulled the credentials for every single media and said, if that's how you're going to treat us, you're not welcome to our shows. And I had, <laughs> I had a reporters literally tell me, I'm not going to cover you because I want to go to the next UFC and they'll pull my press pass if I do. That's, that's not capitalism. That's closer to communism. But as the story gets bigger and bigger and these other organizations that aren't reliant on a backstage pass for the UFC get involved, then our story really gets out there and we get to tell the, the nuts and bolts of this because this really is the biggest fight in MMA history. This will change everything. And it's happened through every single sport. The owners always say, God, you guys are so greedy. You know, for three months out of the year, we're letting you play a game that anyone would love to play. You're so lucky. And then you get to go back to the factory. And then they jump on their private plane and fly away. And I have a, a, a great line in the Zombie Cage Fighter graphic novel where the promoter wants me to fight just this monster of a zombie. And I said, well, man, my, my life is going to be put at risk here. If you really want me to, to fight this monster, you got to pay me some good money. And he says what every promoter always says. Dude, I'm, I'm barely making a, a nickel on these shows. I'm, I'm barely getting by. I, I can't afford to pay you anything. And I get to say, as my character in the book gets to have that, that wonderful conversation I've always wanted to have with a promoter. Oh, that's right. I forgot. There's never been a promoter in the history of the game that's ever made a dime. You all just do this because you love the sport so much. Hell, I should be paying you for the right to risk my life in a cage. Good luck finding a new opponent for your fight. It was just, just sweet to at least write that down for once. 
Fair enough. All right, well, with that, it's a perfect transition. I want to show it here one more time. I want to make sure the folks can see it here. I'm going to make sure I want to screen it. This is it right here. Nate gave me a copy a while ago. I want to say several months ago at this point. This is Zombie Cage Fighter. Now, this is what's kind of interesting about this. You have started, let's start with the Kickstarter, but then i got a million questions about it. There is a Kickstarter out right now. Tell the folks, what is the objective of the Kickstarter? If they donate, what are they donating to? So Kickstarter campaigns are a crowdfunding source where you can raise money to <clears throat> make your passion project come to life. So with me, it was the creation of the Zombie Cage Fighter graphic novel. I'd already paid the artist, paid everybody to help me make this. Now the files are sitting at the printer and I'm ready to go to print. Uh, the funds that we're raising means I get to print more and more copies. We set our funding goal very low at $5,000 so I could just print 1,000 copies. But my ultimate goal is closer to 15, 20,000 so I can print out 5,000 copies because my goal more than anything has just been to tell this story. And so every person that goes to the Kickstarter, and you can find the link on zombiecagefighter.com. And I'll, and I'll put it, I'll put it wherever, wherever you're seeing or hearing this, I will make sure it's in the description box. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. So every person that goes to that Kickstarter and just donates $25, that means that you're ordering a copy of the Zombie Cage Fighter graphic novel signed by me, my life story as a fighter and at the time as a single father plus zombies. And I can't tell you how proud I am of this from from the, the cover artist, Alex Horley. That's an actual painting that he created for me to the interior artist, Travis Kotzebue. He just did incredible work bringing my story to life. And as I as I scripted this out, as I put in every fight scene, I had to think, well, how would I fight a zombie? I, I can't knock him out. They're not going to tap out. What do I need to do to beat this zombie? And really, it's breaking, breaking down the mechanism. If you're fighting somebody with a knife, that's your number one concern. You're fighting a zombie. The number one concern is the bite. And I've got to say, I was fortunate to get a couple of friends to join me on my journey. Uh, Dwayne, uh, Dwayne, uh, Dwayne, Dwayne Van, will fight something I've never seen before against. I, I hate to give the spoiler, but uh, don't, four don't, zombie don't, children. And he has to fight them in a cage match and end that in a spectacular way. And then, of course, the war master himself, Josh Barnett, has a very nice role in it where uh, he gets to do his thing. And it, I know he's such a huge comic book fan. And to me, he's one of the most underrated heavyweights of all time. So I was so happy to be able to put him in the book as well. Yeah, and so is it, is it just the one book, or this is part of a, uh, do you plan to make a series out of these? Like, what is the, assuming everything went, I mean, totally according to plan, what is it you want to do with this brand? So as a graphic novel, that means that the book you're holding right now is the six issues that encompass the entire story of the first series of Zombie Cage Fighter. I do have a sequel planned that will be based on my daughter's life. The third one will be based on my son. So it's it's a whole world that I've kind of come up with, built on, and again, putting my own life into it. It's just, it's been a blast for me. And I've been doing Comic-Cons now for six or seven years. Where I would do one individual issue. I'd take it to the Comic-Con. I'd do some shirts. I'd sell them there. And I'd always have people coming up to me saying, hey, when's the next issue coming out? We need to know that, how the story ends. And finally, this is the first opportunity anyone's had to read the entire story. 
And this is something you've been doing for a while. I mean, folks who may not know this, again, Nate and I were on a TV show together in 2012. I don't know if you remember this, but during that TV show filming, or maybe right after it, but let's say in pretty close proximity, you had given me a zombie cage fighter t-shirt. So back then, was that a fully formed concept, or was that just something where you, you may put some like you know uh, uh, pieces of artwork together, but it wasn't fleshed out? No so pun intended. So let me tell you the, the origin story of zombie cage fighter. After practice, I'd be hanging out with my nerd buddies, the other fighters, and we'd be talking Marvel Comics and Star Wars. It's kind of our culture in a lot of ways, shockingly enough. I'm sure there's a lot of other fight camps out there that are way cooler and are talking about <laughs> cool things. But in our fight camps, we'd be talking about Star Wars and Marvel movies. And I started thinking about, well, what could an MMA fighter, how could he hang in that world? And to me, the most logical thing, the thing that I could understand the most was zombies. We can understand a pandemic uh, infecting people and turning into these brain-hungry monsters. And it's something that an MMA fighter could fight one-on-one or in Dwayne's case, maybe four-on-one. And so at the time, there was a channel, G4, with a show called Attack of the Show. Hmm. And it was just one of my favorite shows of all time. Just all sorts of pop culture nonsense and, and fights. They'd have me come down and give predictions. And at the end of one of the shows, the host said, so what are you working on now? Meaning, what's your next fight coming up? And my response was, well, right now I'm working on Zombie Cage Fighter. And the rules are pretty simple. For humans, no biting. For zombies, mostly biting. And the producer of the show came up to me afterwards and said, I love it. I want to see everything you've got. And I shook his hand. I looked him in the eye and I said, all right, I'm going to go home. I'm going to put together a pitch for you and I'll bring it back down and see what you think. Because I had nothing other than my ideas. So I went home. I sat at my old school big monitor computer that would freeze every 10 or 15 minutes. And I just started typing. And I ended up with a 17, 18 page story that I started handing out to some people that were smarter than I and gave me their ideas on it made some tweaks did a photo shoot of myself as a zombie uh went back down and and pitched it to them and they just said this is phenomenal we love this what do you want to do and i said well everything i want to do movie comic book shirts so the shirt that i gave you was a big big part of that and then in 2012 working on spike tv they gave me the opportunity to launch my first comic book that issue zero uh at san diego comic-con right after luke skywalker was on stage so I like to judge things by how my 12-year-old self thinks about things, and <laughs> according to him, I'm doing pretty good right now. Yeah, no kidding about it. That is a, that's a hell of a story. Wow. Even I didn't realize that. And I got to tell you, like, I'm not going to give away some of the plot points, but one of the things I love about this, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to say which one it was, but there's a scene early on in reading this edition where uh, your character, you play yourself, or your, you know, the character is you, essentially, obviously, you know, the stylized version, but there are interactions where you describe certain injuries, the character, I should say, describe certain injuries, for example, one about the eyes. Is that a real injury you have that you took into the comic book? Like, how much of that is artistic interpretation? How much of it is just a straight line? Uh, most, most all of the plot points are a straight line across. So my left eye has been damaged so badly that it doesn't adjust to light the same as my right eye does. And it's a little farsighted or a little, yeah, it's a little farsighted. My right eye is a little nearsighted. So when I go out on bright days and I look up at the clouds, if I cover my left eye, I can see all the definition. But in my left eye, when I'm looking up, it's just a white 
sheet of brightness. So you'll mm. see me a lot of times walking around with my left eye closed or wearing sunglasses when it's maybe not that sunny of a day. And I swear it's not because I'm trying to look cool. It's because, no, I've got 13 screws in my face. My left pupil doesn't shut like my right does. I've got six screws in my back, right pectoral reattached, left ankle operated on, left bicep reattached, all sorts of things for do you want to be a fighter? No doubt about it. And then, uh, obviously, it gets really personal about your children a little bit later. I don't want to give away too many plot points there uh, as well. But I wonder, in writing this and putting it together, and, and for folks who may not know, I want to be clear about this. I'll even show you. I, Nate wrote me a note. I, I kept it, so I'm going to cover that up. But if you look closely, you can see here very quickly, uh, Nate is credited, of course, as the creator. But also, you co-wrote the script. I wonder, in writing this, was it cathartic was it fun was it i don't know emotional how would you describe the process of putting your story again stylized through this zombie narrative i'd say it was all of those things and i always compare it to rocky basically rocky meets the walking dead but if you look at rocky <laughs> that's a, you know go. that's a very that's a very easy <laughs> pitch to understand actually i like that <laughs> When If you ask somebody, hey, what was Rocky about, they'll invariably say, well, it was about boxing. Well, it had boxing in it. But in right. reality, it was about this burned-out loser who had one final chance to prove, maybe not even to the world, but to himself, that he did matter, that he had value. And even though he lost that title fight, he went the distance and he showed, no, I, I am good enough to be here. And in the zombie cage fighter world, and we see this tale over and over again, fighters that never quite make it over the hump or they don't know when to quit and my character never quite makes it and so he's on the downside and he's fighting in the small shows and gets gets the crap kicked out of him by an up-and-coming nobody and the promoter after the fight just says look man people are no longer excited to see you on the card they're sad you should have quit a long time ago it's it's time for you to to turn it in and my character just says, I, I've got nowhere else to go. What else can I do? I'm a fighter. This is all I know. And I've seen that over and over again with fighters. Their entire identity is built into the fighting. They don't see it as a career. They see it as a life. Well, sooner or later, that life is going to chew you up and spit you out. You need to choose when to, to leave gracefully. But with, with my character in the book, looking at this little girl with Every dream, every dream that he ever had has died except for one. And that last dream is to make sure his little girl doesn't end up like him. So he's willing to step into the cage against these zombies if it means he'll make enough money to hopefully get his daughter out of the bad neighborhood, maybe send her to school so she doesn't, doesn't end up broken, broken like he has. And I think as, as any parent can look at their own children, their own life, that's really the dream of us all, to provide for our kids, to give them a better life than we've had, to give them better opportunities than we've had. I didn't understand that until I had one, and now I, it's, it's, you know, it's your North Star from the minute you wake up to the moment you go to bed. Still, I want to probe this a little bit because, it, again, the, the story is so personal. Do you not look back on your fighting career fondly? I do in, in many ways. I mean, I, I never dreamed this big that my life could turn out this way. I've traveled around the world because of MMA. Millions of people know my name. Millions of people have seen me fight or at least get knocked out. Uh, <laughs> this is so much beyond anything that I ever dreamed. But at the same time, uh, coming from such a unpleasant childhood, uh, I had a lot of demons that, that I carried with me through my career. And 
if I hadn't found MMA, I have no doubt I would be a raging alcoholic, just filled with rage, sitting at the bar or getting in bar fights, doing something unproductive. MMA, for me, it, it saved me. It found me an outlet for my rage. And in my, my last fight, when I stepped into the cage against Jorge Rivera, I remember stepping in and looking down and thinking to myself, boy, I'm just not as angry as I used to be. And I continued to fight. I, I took my beating like, like I should. Uh, but after that, I just said, you know, that fire isn't there. I, I feel much more, much more at peace with the way my life has gone and, and the trials and tribulations I've gone through. So I can and not just look at my childhood, the injuries that I've had, the coaches that told me I was no good and I never would be over and over again. But as I like to say, if you're happy with the destination, you can't complain about the road that got you there. So through all of the trials and tribulations, I, I can't tell you how happy I am that I've got a, a daughter that's just phenomenal. I've got a beautiful, loving, caring wife. I've got a, a new son that is just, as you know, just so exciting to, to be with every single day and play with and, and see his growth. And I get to tell that story through my comic book. And I remember being in, in Times Square and looking up and seeing a billboard with my face on it. No one recognized me. Nobody came up to shake my hand. <laughs> but for myself, I thought, my God, this is so far from where I was. I, I remember sitting in, in, in the cult church that I was raised and thinking, I'm never going to leave this place. This is going to be my life. And, and almost being in tears at 12, 13 years of age. And then finding my way out, finding my strength to, to follow my dreams and make my life. And as I said, after uh, my Pete Cell rematch, when took a hell of a beating for two rounds and finally came back and knocked him out in the third. You can make your life whatever you want it to be if you believe in yourself. And it, it's very difficult to do. And most people give up. But with a, a, enough work and, and hard-headedness and toughness, quite often that's the case. So what, what do you attribute to uh, the enduring popularity of zombies, right? Why is it that, you know, it, it just not even year after year, quite frankly. I mean, we're talking about now decade after decade, and it ebbs and flows like any other thing, but there's a real sticking power to all of this. I mean, if it, let me, here's how I explain zombies to people. If it wasn't made by a more advanced, um, you know, CGI situation, you wouldn't actually be able to tell what decade a movie was made in, right? I mean, if there's there's certain like, sort of popular themes that fit certain decades, but zombies have this sort of enduring appeal. To what do you attribute that to? Well, I would say, and I've been asked a few times, especially when I started to do Zombie Cage Fighter, people would say, oh, you must be a huge fan of zombies. What's your favorite zombie movie? And my response was always the same. You know, I never really followed them because so many of the movies were just, we're just going to blow blow guys brains out and that's it but the good movies and the walking dead especially i don't think this is a spoiler when i say the walking dead aren't the zombies it's the people it's right. all about the interactions of the people with the zombies and you find out truly who you are what kind of a person you are during a zombie pandemic or any other kind of a pandemic are you going to be running down the store buying up every roll of toilet paper you can find or are you going to see yourself as a part of a community and we're all going to get through this together? Are you going to deny some basic safety requirements? Are you going to say, even though I don't understand it, it's not that big of a deal. And if there's a 1% chance it's going to help somebody, I'm on board. I think it really exposes who we are and, and zombies really make that, that case very clear. Uh, the joke is, you know, I don't have to be faster than the zombies. I just have to be faster than you. 
So am I going to shove you down so I can get away? Or are we in this together? I think it's such a great metaphor for life in general as to who we are. And you see the struggle of people that have to come together if they're going to survive. Uh, uh, very quickly, because I want to have a follow-up on it. Have you seen, it's, I think it's on Netflix, but it's been widely available for some time. Is the South Korean movie, Train to Busan? Yes. Okay. So if you take the zombies in there, they have a very different mobility than the zombies from Walking Dead. How would you describe the zombies in Zombie Cage Fighter? Are they more Train to Busan or are they more Walking Dead type? It's a little bit of both, and the way that we kind of break it down is uh, if they're fresh, they're going to be a little bit stronger, and in, in, in the zombie cage fighting world, in the cages where they're kept, they'll feed them to keep them strong because they'll still get a little bit of the, the, the guts, the, the nutrients going into their system, and then they'll starve them for a couple of days so they're a little bit more savage. Fresh zombies, and that's one thing I always say, zombie cage fire, we have the freshest zombies. So if that cage door opens, and there's one fight in the book as well where uh, a kid by the name of, we just call him Richie Rich, he buys himself a fight into the zombie cage fighting world. So they give him somebody wearing a ball gag with one arm uh, chained down to his side so he can get out there and be a big, bad zombie cage fighter. That's an interesting fight how that one goes. But, yeah, it's, it's a good mixture how they come out. <laughs> Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, the last thing on the zombie cage fighter, again, I'm just going to show you like a random page here. I just flipped to one. You know, I'm certainly not an expert on graphic novels. Um, you know, I, I want to be very clear about that. I've read a couple in my life, you know. But I got to say, the quality of this is extraordinary. I mean, the illustrations are good, but the layout of the pages is clean. I mean, the, if you look at the pictures under a certain light, they almost look embossed, like almost like they have contours that you can touch along with it. Um, this had to be expensive to produce, no? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just to create the comic itself was very expensive. Uh, my Kickstarter comes nowhere close to paying for the production of the, the material itself. But for me, this has just been a passion project, something that I believe in and I want to tell this story. And then, as I mentioned, uh, the cover artist, the interior artist, they're just phenomenal. And when I took my original story to uh, someone to help me turn it into a six-issue series, that was just phenomenal as well. I went to the best. I, I learned a long time ago, I'm never going to be the smartest guy in the room, but I can know the smartest guy in the room. And I can ask them all the questions I want and get the answers. So having a phenomenal team that brought this together has is, is really just been a dream come true. And that's why it took eight years to get this book done. And I went through right. several artists, had many different incantations of this book until I really settled on a team that I liked. And it was beautiful. And as you mentioned, the printing, API printing here in the United States, we're keeping it local. Just a phenomenal job with it. And when I got it, it really was, it brought tears to my eyes. Because not only is it is it my own comic book, I, I saw uh, Clerks in the Theater when I was 22. I was still a Jehovah's Witness, still in the very restrictive cult. I was not allowed to see R-rated movies. I snuck out by myself to see this movie and was just blown away at how hilarious it was. And it seemed like almost a guy like me, just a, a guy from the neighborhood, following his dreams and making this movie. Kevin Smith just talked about this graphic novel on his podcast a couple weeks ago. So again, my... My 12-year-old self, my 22-year-old self is just so happy with how things have gone. It's it's just a dream come true to have my story told in such an incredible way with such high quality. 
Well, again, if you want more information or you would like to donate to the Kickstarter campaign, it's still active, I think, for another, uh, the, at the time of this recording, another 40, 45 days or so. So you still have some yeah. time, but there's no time like the present. I'll put the link in the description box below. It is Zombie Cage Fighter. It is high-quality stuff. It is, in many ways, the story of Nate Quarry. And uh, I've seen parts of the story of Nate Quarry. Nate, it is great to see you thriving. Thank you for the free copy, by the way. And... Um, I'm just glad to see you're doing so well and curious to see how all these advocacy efforts pay out for, uh, figuratively, of course, for uh, you and uh, all the other fighters. If, the, if you want to leave the folks with something in terms of resources beyond just the Kickstarter to know more about all the things you've been devoting your time to, um, where should they go? Uh, well, to reach the Kickstarter, you either go to Kickstarter and type in Zombie Cage Fighter. Just go to zombiecagefighter.com. You'll see a lot of the story itself, a lot of the, the gear that we have available. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Nate Rock Quarry. Be warned. I put out all of my opinions there. If you want to have an, an intelligent discussion with me, I am for it. If you want to uh, spout off some uh, uh, negative comments or some, some alternative facts, I might be there to shut you down with some links or so. <laughs> but I'm always down to have a, a great conversation with anyone. And I find that I learn all the time. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about social media is I get to connect with people I wouldn't otherwise. And I get to try and understand their perspective and their life experiences. No doubt about it. Nate, it is great to catch up with you. I uh, wish you nothing but the best of luck. You know, it sounds like you don't need it with the Zombie Cage Fighter Project and everything else you're doing. Thank you for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Well, I've got uh, one little one little buddy that wants to stick his head in here it's been it's been a rough day for him oh let's see oh my goodness hey buddy what's his name atticus atticus winter's quarry Kaleo yeah not like atticus finch uh atticus definitely uh winters from uh band of brothers so we we put some names in there to to give him some value and he's just He's just on fire all the time, getting into everything, <laughs> causing trouble. Look, look at those teeth. I see those <laughs> teeth, little buddy. <laughs> yeah, look at the smile. He seems like a sweet kid, Nate. <laughs> yeah, just don't turn your back for five seconds. <laughs> all right, well, with that being said, I'll let you get back to him. Thanks so much, and uh, can't wait to see what happens with Zombie Cage Fighter. Awesome. Thank you so much.